So we have been uh, going through a red letter study, and we are still going through a red letter study. Last week we talked about, um, oh, it was uh, Jesus as the hero of the hero's journey returning home and uh, coming back out of the experience in the wilderness and everything that he did there to you know, put down his own human obsessive compulsive drives because, yes, Jesus had to do that too, like every single one of us. But when he came back, came back to Galilee, when he came back to uh, his hometown of Nazareth, people were amazed at the transformation, at the difference in him. You know, isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, just, just amazed. There's a lot more to be mined there that I wanted to come and return to this morning and see if we can now take that and although we are always trying to apply anything that we learn from Scripture and any theological point we make to activities of daily living right here and right now, I want to make sure there's always that bright one-to-one connection. We're not just talking about this stuff in theory. We're not talking about this in the abstract. If it doesn't really pertain to everyday life, if it can't help us make our choices, hold our relationships closer together, then what's the point? I mean, what are we doing here? And so I think there's a little bit more that we can bring out here. Jesus is the hero returning home. And uh, it's fun to think of it like sometimes like he conquered a battle. Well, he actually did. It was an interior battle. But when he comes out of the wilderness, he's calling his father in heaven, whom the Jews call the king of the universe, he's calling him Abba, which is the, the word that the children use to talk about their daddies, to talk about those, that, that figure that they have, this intimate connection with, this intimate familiarity. And so he has changed by that. He has undertaken a hero's journey. And just briefly, if you weren't here last week, um, let's take a look. I even wrote down a really quick one-liner for you in your handouts. Um, A hero's journey is a personal growth cycle, always initiated by loss or insight that is stark enough to devastate our self-narrative our worldview, our view of the world as we know it. So this hero's journey is initiated by something, something that pulls the curtain away, something that lets us see that there's another there there, something that shows us that the way that we have been describing our world and our relationship with it is not enough. Often that is a loss, a trauma, a death, loss of a job, loss of facility. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's an injury. It can be so many things that strip away the veneer of everything that we've been using up to that point to make sense of our life, to feel secure, and to hold everything together. Suddenly, all of that is in question. That is a call to a journey into a larger world, a world that we're going to need a larger sense of meaning to encompass. The question is, will we answer that call? Because it's scary out there. We know the rules here. We know the way our world works here. But how does it work out there? No idea. So Jesus answers that call. And he's awakened to his true identity, his true oneness with his Father. When he comes out again of the wilderness, he's also saying, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to see unseen God because you're seeing him right here and right now in the way that I love, in the way that I relate, in the way that I process reality. All of these things that I am living and showing you, this is the Father in action. And so that awakening that he had in that wilderness experience allowed him to come home with a gift 
a gift that he could give his community. Let's take a look at Luke 4, starting at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and because of this he has anointed me to declare hope to the poor, and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to preach to the captives release, and to the blind sight, and to free with forgiveness those who are oppressed, and to preach the year acceptable of the Lord. This is Jesus reading from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. He was handed the scroll of Isaiah. He navigates to the place. He reads this. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it to the minister and went and sat down. And all those in the assembly, their eyes were fixed on him. Their eyes were fixed on him. They were breathless. They were expectant. They were waiting for something spectacular to happen because they'd heard about him. They'd heard about him in Capernaum, which was his new hometown. Now he's back in Nazareth where he actually grew up. But they heard about what he was doing in Capernaum and other parts of the Galilee, the signs, the healings that he was doing. And they expected the same here. They expected more here in his hometown. They had assigned obligation to Jesus and the obligation was that Jesus would give preference to his own family, to his own village, to the place where he grew up. But what they did was miss the essential point. The essential point that Jesus is always bringing forth, which is that Jesus' healings, the signs that he does, are collaborative. They're not unilateral. They're not one way. They're a partnership between healer and the healed. They're collaborative. If you really pay attention to what Jesus says at the point of his healings, he's not actually the one doing the healing. He never says, I heal you. He never says, I forgive you. What does he say? He says, your faith has made you whole, right? He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. He's recognizing the forgiven state of a person. He's recognizing that their faith is strong enough that they've been able to move past whatever limitation is on them at the time. You are forgiven. What he's basically saying is that the onus is on us. The duty, the responsibility for our healing is on us because God has already chosen there's nothing more that God can choose. There's nothing that God is withholding. God has chosen, and he's chosen for us. He's made the healing available to us, the redemption, the forgiveness. It's all here. It's all now. The waiting is over, right? The kingdom is here. What are we going to do with it? And so what Jesus really is, what he represents in these encounters, he's the catalyst. He's the focal point for a healing that's already present. That's a very different thing. If the person who needs the healing will submit, will surrender, will immerse themselves into the healing that's already here, then it actually takes place. But the people of Nazareth are not ready for such a collaboration with God. They're not ready for that kind of partnership, that kind of connection. So what was Jesus' gift? Well, he says it right here in Isaiah, that it's a declaration of hope. And this is coming from the Peshitta version. This is directly out of the Syriac, the Aramaic. A declaration of hope. 
Your versions may say the preaching of the gospel, but what that boils down to is a declaration of hope, of healing, of release, of sight, new sight, forgiveness. Always spiritual in nature. Always spiritual in nature. But sometimes physical too. Sometimes the sight is physical. Sometimes the the release from a paralysis is physical, but often it's spiritual. Always spiritual, because that's primarily where Jesus is trying to touch, is that our spiritual natures. So we've got to be ready for this. It's collaborative. If we're ready to receive, to accept a new perspective, a new order of reality, then the connection happens. And if you really want to boil it down, in truth, Jesus himself was the gift that he was bringing. His absolute transformance, his being, his presence couldn't be ignored. There's no way to ignore that. And it was a call to their own and our own hero's journey as well. One person's gift is the next person's call to the hero's journey. Because what is it doing? It is calling into question your own narrative, your own worldview, your own way. Because here's something that comes out of the desert, comes out of the wilderness. It's alien. You don't know what to do with it yet. It is so different than what you have processed. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to shove it off? Are you going to defend against it? Are you going to start to let it in and let it see what it does in you? Jesus himself was the gift. He, his presence, the way he taught, the way he spoke, was the goad, was the call for these people to enter a completely new world. Somewhere over the rainbow, right? Or down the rabbit hole, whichever hero's journey story you want to go with. But this was the call. Now, you can't go on this journey with any baggage. Not even carry-on baggage. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. No baggage. You've got to drop your nets. You've got to sell everything. You've got to lose your life if you want to find it. You've got to pick up your cross and deny yourself. All of these metaphors that Jesus uses, all these images, come to the fore now as we're trying to understand what he's trying to get across to us. So this is what he's bringing to the people, a challenge to the way that they're thinking. And they're expecting him to do exactly what they expect him to do. And he's not going to perform to those specifications. So how do the people react? Let's take a look at Luke 4, starting at verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 21. And he began to say to them, okay, this is after he reads the Isaiah scroll and he sits down. Now, sitting down was a signal that he was going to teach. Stand to read, you sit to teach. As soon as he sits down, they know he's assuming that role of the teacher, of the expounder, the one who is now going to elaborate on what was just read. And he begins to say to them, today, this scripture, which one, Isaiah, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Isn't that true? I mean, if you grow up with somebody 
You know, if you change their diapers, you know, if you watch them do all the things that children do, how hard is it then later on in life to accept them as an authority figure? Because you're still remembering when, right? It's so difficult to do that. This is what Jesus is up against right now. They knew him when. And now they're trying to accept him as an authority figure and they're having a big problem with that. No prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elisha, Eliyah, if I say it in the Hebrew, Eliyah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came all over the land, and yet Eliyah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in a land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Why is that significant? Because Zarephath in Sidon is a Gentile nation. It's outside of the city of Israel. It's in what is today Lebanon, right on the coast. So he's saying, hey, it's not about your ethnicity. It's not about your birthright. Look what happened here in the days of Elijah. And yet there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Again, Syria, Arab nation, outside of the land of Israel. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So his uh, significance is not lost on them. They know exactly what he's saying. You're expecting all these things because this is my hometown, because we are fellow Jews. But I'm telling you, it's there in our scriptures that it's not about just your birthright. He knows that the people aren't ready for the gift that he's bringing them. He understand. He, he knew that as soon as he walked in, I'm sure. I always remember hearing this great story about old-timer in an AA meeting. You know, He sees a, a man walk in the door, looks at him for a second, walks over, hands him a $10 bill, and says, go get a drink, come back when you're ready. He just knew. He knew the man was not ready. Jesus knows these people are not ready. They're not ready to do it. Initially, when he sits to teach and opens his mouth, they're amazed. They're positive at first. They, because, why? Because they assumed they knew what he was about. They assumed they knew what he was going to say. They assumed they knew what he meant. What we think we know determines what we actually hear. It determines what we understand. It's called confirmation bias, right? the filter that we look through. We interpret any new evidence as confirming what we already know, what's already accepted. We do that automatically. That's why Jesus keeps saying, he who has ears, she who has ears, let them hear. Because you're going to need to hear with a different set of eardrums. You're going to need to hear this in a different way. Because what we think we know determines what we hear. It's not that the people weren't listening to him. They were listening intently because they were expecting so much. But this Jesus was so alien to them now, so alien to their thinking, that they couldn't hear what he was saying. They didn't have the ears for it. Now think about when, when we just are hearing something in a setting like this or any setting. How often are we just confirming what we think we already know, assuming that what is being said is what we already know? 
you know, I made this comment before, and usually there's running jokes for a few weeks or months afterwards. You know, when people come up and they say, oh, pastor, that was a lovely sermon. What are they really saying? They're saying, it confirmed everything I think I already know. That's what a lovely sermon is about. It just confirms, makes me feel good, makes me reinforce everything I think I know. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the compliments that you give me at the end of the message, but the ones that I really like are the ones that say, you know, I'm going to have to think about that one. I'm not sure. I never thought about it that way before. You know, I'll let you know later what I think about that. Or maybe they come up with a question or even a rebuttal. That's great. Because then I'm doing my job. If I'm just giving you loveliness, if I'm not saying something in a way that is at least at some point sticking a goat in, then there's something wrong here. Old definition of a good sermon is one that brings comfort to the uncomfortable and discomfort to those who are comfortable. It should be just enough to to rock you on your chair, but not so much that you start looking for rocks, right? It's that, that middle place that we're trying to hit. How do we do that? Now, the Nazarenes here that Jesus was addressing had set beliefs. They were set in their narrative, set in their worldview, in their expectations. And Jesus goes about tearing it down from top to bottom, just lays it out. It's not about your birthright. It's not a, you're not entitled to anything because you're Jewish or because we, were, we grew up together. Whoever no longer is defended or defending their way of thinking is the one for whom this gift, this healing is meant. I mean, it's meant for everybody, but the only one who's going to receive it is the one who's no longer defended. If you're still defending your way, if you're ready to throw me down off this cliff to defend your way, then of course, there is no transaction here. Nothing is going to happen. And it's no different now for us. Before any of us can answer Jesus' call, we must dismantle our narrative, take down our own worldview. Now, maybe that's going to happen intentionally, Often it's going to happen by catastrophe. It's going to be the events in our lives, the losses that we suffer, that pull away that curtain, as we said, that challenge everything we think we know. And then it's up to us to move from that new vantage point forward, not to seed the ground that has already been given us because of events in our lives, but to start from that point and keep on going. But so often we want to pull back to what is safe, I was just talking to someone who's just getting into everything that we offer here at the, uh, the Effect. And she was at our um, book study on Wednesday for the first time up in the Sacramento area. And she said, that, you know, these new ideas are so hard. I think I get them. And then in the next moment, they're gone again. And I said, and she thought there was something wrong with her. I mean, you know, I said, absolutely not. You're exactly in the only place you could be. When you are trying to assimilate something that is so different from the way that you were raised, from everything that you think you know, I said 30 years ago when I was starting this journey, I had the image of a a small child in his mother's lap sitting in the dry sand on the beach and then running out into the surf when the water receded, right? And then as soon as the waves started coming back in, to panic and run right back into his mother's lap. That's how I felt it was, you know? I could forage out 
Or like Peter stepping out of the boat, and then all of a sudden, oh my God, what am I doing? I run back to my books. I remember skittering back to my books and checking to make sure I hadn't blown it because I didn't want to go to hell, even though I was learning about the Father's love in this brand new way. I was learning about kingdom in this brand new way. And yet there was still so much fear there. Oscillation, back and forth and back and forth. This is where we all are. This is what happens. So it's no different now. Before we can answer this call, we have to dismantle everything and go through that period, that back and forth period, that dance we do with with God and reality and our relationships and everything else to try to get to a point where we can start to stabilize, where we can start to get comfortable. What's happening is we're starting to finally trust that this message, this such different message, could actually be true. Now, how do you do that? That's well, not easy, obviously. But first, you have to admit that you actually have a worldview. That's the first step. Because we don't even think we have a worldview, do we? We just think this is reality. This is the way it is. What I believe, what I've been taught, that's just the way it is. Everybody else is wrong. This is, this is the way it is. This is the one true church. This is the one truth. This is the absolute. But to admit that you have a worldview, that it was a decision that was either given to you, a choice that was given to you, or you accepted it at some level and then reinforced it enough so that it became the ground on which you walk. But it's a choice. You have to first realize that it's a choice that you can now unmake. It's not absolute. And then secondly, you have to admit it's no longer working, quote unquote, for you. It no longer describes the world that you're living in. It no longer allows you to accept life on life's terms and live with a sense of hope and gratitude. It's not doing that for you anymore. Too much water under the bridge. Too many hits below the belt have taken place. Too many muggings in dark alleys. And so what are you going to do? Now, the good news is we don't need everything defined in advance. That's the old way of thinking, that we have to have it all set up. It has to be absolutely true. No, we don't need that to get started. I wanted to read you just a few paragraphs from actually the big book of AA. This is from a a section called We Agnostics, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. So this is written for agnostics, by agnostics, who are also working 12 steps and working recovery. We of agnostic temperament have found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results. Even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. Much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with God, with this higher power of our own understanding. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, 
to all people. When therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies too to other spiritual expressions which you find in this book. Do not let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. At the start, this was all we needed to commence spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relation with God as we understood him. Afterward, we found ourselves accepting many things which then seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth. But if we wished to grow, we had to begin somewhere. So we used our own conception, however limited it was. We needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. That was great news to us, for we had assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith which seemed difficult to believe. When people presented us with spiritual approaches, how frequently did we all say, I wish I had what that man has. I'm sure it would work if I could only believe as he believes. But I cannot accept as surely true the many articles of faith which are so plain to him. So it was comforting to learn that we could commence at a simpler level. Okay, so we already believe in God, right? This is not a, a task for us. That's why we're here. But this approach that they're talking about in AA is not just about God's existence. It's about the first step away from an old set of beliefs toward a new set of beliefs. The first step is always just a willingness, a willingness to question what it is that you thought you believed. Are you willing to even do that? Or are you so well defended, even at the unconscious level, that that's not even a possibility, that you're just triggered emotionally and you're off to the races and the train leaves the station? Are you willing to question your beliefs? Admit the possibility that something new might actually be a better way to describe the life that you're actually living. Never mind true, but does it at least describe better what you're going through? Does it encompass the loss that you're trying to accommodate into your life? Does it crack the door open to new possibilities? That's the first step. We don't need to have everything to find in advance. I mean, do you need to understand how electricity works to turn on a light switch? I don't think so, because truthfully, nobody understands how electricity works. There's all kinds of theories about it, but we can flip a switch. We don't have to have it all defined at once. This idea of clarity versus um, uncertainty is a really big issue, because in our fear, we want clarity. We want certainty. But life is uncertain. Life is full of mystery and paradox. If we can't get comfortable with that, we can't get comfortable with life. We will always be resisting what life is really all about. And the things that are most pleasurable to us are the things that are the most mysterious. How do you define the love that you have for a child 
or for a spouse, for a parent, for anybody? How do you define that? How do you prove that? How do you define what it is you experience when you go out into nature, when you go out into the surf, when you go out on the boat, fishing, or whatever it is that you do, and you just feel that you are absolutely a part of something huge, and you feel connected, and you feel whole, and life has meaning. How do you define those things? We don't have to. We can't. Not logically. But we know that we know and we're convinced that they actually exist, that they are ordering our life in some way. We just need to allow the possibility to be open, a willingness to consider that something else may be true. Now, on the other hand, it sure helps to have a map. <laughs> it sure helps to have a sense of the shape of the journey so that even as you're going out, that you kind of know that you're still on the right track. And even when it gets really hairy, really difficult, it's okay. That's exactly what you're supposed to be feeling, like that woman we're talking about, this oscillation you're going through, this doubt. That's exactly what you should be feeling. That's exactly where you're supposed to be. That is good, because that can keep you on track. That's the purpose of all the talking and the teaching that we do here in one-on-one, -on -one, in counseling, in spiritual direction, whatever. It's not to bestow on you or anybody the truth of something. That's impossible. Such things can't be transferred. But it is at least to put an X over the treasure on our map, to get the map in the first place, and then put an X over the treasure so we're not just digging random holes all over the place. You know, Do we at least have a direction? Are we at least pointing in a direction? That's what we're trying to do here. Now, by now, you should be asking, okay, what are these next steps I should be taking? Or maybe it's just like, what in the heck are you talking about? But realize, maybe there's something that is not happening in your life and could happen to a greater degree, a next step that you can take. Now, Miriam mentioned that Wednesday nights we're doing our book study, which is on the practice of the presence of God, Brother Lawrence. And it's been a great study, and Brother Lawrence is right on point with what we're talking about practicing presence. He was able to boil down the entire spiritual life, his spiritual journey, in just one sentence. And that's really important. Just one sentence. If you got your inserts, just take a look. There's a little quote there. This is from his second letter. There are 14 letters that are bound together in practicing the presence of God. Four conversations, 14 letters. This is the second letter that we've read thus far. And it's to a, a woman, a reverend mother. She would be the leader of a, of a convent of women. And she's having a difficult time. They had a, a kindred spirit. They were both practicing presence at some point, And she has really hit the dark night of the soul type of thing, the, the difficult point of her journey. And Brother Lawrence is trying to encourage her. He's trying to bolster her. He's trying to keep her on the track. And in this particular quote, he's talking to her about another nun who is taking her first or final vows, and she gave him two books. And he says, I will send you one of these books that deal with the presence of God. In my viewpoint, this is what the spiritual life is all about. And it seems to me that by practicing it properly, one becomes spiritual in a short time. That's it. One sentence. 
practicing the presence of God, if you really do it, and do it properly, you will become spiritual in a very short time. Practicing presence sums it all up for Brother Lawrence. It's what the spiritual life actually is, is the practice of presence. Now, we defined spirituality last week, and I just want to remind you of this, because we think of spirituality sometimes in religious terms and all these other terms, but this definition caught my attention because it seemed to sum it up pretty well. The spirituality is how we as humans express and seek meaning, purpose, identity, how we seek it, how we express meaning, purpose, and identity, and how we experience connection, both with each other, with all of nature, and with the significant or the sacred that we would call God. That's pretty good. Seeking and expressing meaning, experiencing connection. Now, to experience connection is to seek meaning, right? Because they're one and the same. Meaning is only found in connection. So to experience connection, what do we need to do? Well, we need to lay aside all that disconnects us. That's our fear-based thoughts. Those that see ourselves as separate, see someone else as other, our fear-based beliefs, our codes. Now, which of these are fear-based? How are you going to know that? You're not. So you're going to need to be willing to lay down everything in order to find out which ones come back to you in love. When you have moved over to a love base, which of those beliefs still hold? Which still express and encompass the life that you are now living? But initially, you need to be willing to lay it all down, to lose your sense of self, to submit, to surrender, to admit that you don't have it all figured out. How hard is that sometimes? Just to admit, I don't know. I don't have it all figured out. To entertain or consider the possibility of a greater truth that can free us from our current limitations. Whatever it is we're feeling, the inability to deal with the losses that we have encountered. So what is this journey? In one sentence, it's practicing presence. If you do that, Brother Lawrence says, you get it all. Now, did Jesus give us one sentence as well? You betcha. Many times. Many different sentences all focused on the same thing. Many different metaphors and pictures to try to get across this one idea. One way he said it was, seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness and all else will be added. Basically saying the same thing that Brother Lawrence is saying. If you seek first the kingdom, what is the kingdom? What is God's righteousness as opposed to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was the law? God's righteousness is unity and oneness. From that, everything else flows. Seek that first that you're only going to be able to experience in presence because it is presence. Unity and oneness is presence. It's connection. It's identity. They're saying the same thing. Seek first the practice of the presence. Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness and all else will be added. You get it all. Unless we become, Jesus said, like little children, we can't enter the kingdom. Unless you become like one of these, he holds up the child that they were trying to keep away from him. 
You can't enter the kingdom because such as these are kingdom. They represent what kingdom is all about, that immediacy, that connection, right? Unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is all about the law, you can't enter the kingdom because you can't obey your way into kingdom. It's an inward transformation that changes everything. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom. Unless you're born into a whole different way of processing at a spiritual level what is going on and layering those two together. Unless you sell everything that you own, give it to the poor, you can't enter kingdom. Unless you're willing to lose your life, you won't find it in the kingdom. Do you see the pattern that's forming here in everything that Jesus is saying in these one-liners? Each one of these one sentences, each one of these one-liners is pointing at letting rational understanding go, preferring it less, in favor of something that's indefinable, uncontrollable. He uses the image of the wind. Can't control it. Don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. The spirit the seeking and expressing of meaning, the experience of connection, has those qualities. Not well-defined, uncontrollable, paradoxical sometimes. So if being spiritual is seeking and expressing meaning, well, aren't we saying that we have to define it? How can we express something that we haven't defined? Are we talking here? in a catch-22 or some kind of contradiction? Well, not so fast. I want to read you just a little portion. This one was one that had to set me back because this is a a chaplain, a board-certified chaplain who works in long-term care. And she was um, challenging Viktor Frankl and Viktor Frankl's notion of meaning and how meaning is therapeutic for us. And of course, Viktor Frankl is one of my heroes. Right? And I've, I've, I've read him for years and the way that he approaches meaning. He basically says, in difficult times and in suffering, if we can find the meaning in the suffering, then it becomes overcomable. Then we can move through. And so that's been kind of a hallmark of, of my understanding. So here she comes. And as soon as I read this, the resistance was right there. Ah, she can't be right. This is not, I know. And I wanted to try to, I was thinking in my head ways to rebut what she was talking about that she must be missing something. But as I sat with it longer, I started to realize, no, there's something really important here, and it pertains exactly to what we're talking about. So she writes this. She says, I have found in my work as a chaplain that there are many instances when meaning has no truth or value or place in reality. Well, you can see how that just got my hairs up on the back of my neck, right? But listen to this. She says, such as, a mother in the ER who wails as her 16-year-old lies dead from an accidental shooting. A one-year-old who lies dead from a broken skull. A 78-year-old woman filled with a stench of cancer who waits, alert, to succumb to death. A 98-year-old woman who asks with sincerity, why is it so hard to stop breathing? An 18-year-old who buries her 10-month-old daughter because there was no money for a doctor. In such instances, 
Can a person reason for meaning? Is there meaning to be found? Or would it be better and perhaps more healing to sit with the reality of the unknown, to acknowledge it and allow it its own space without trying to put meaning on it? And would that not resonate more true to those undergoing the suffering? Would silence in the face of mystery itself not speak a truth? We often concentrate on the concrete whys of existence, meaning, purpose. And sometimes dealing in this realm can be therapeutic. On the other hand, I also believe that much of our existence deals with the unknowable, mysterious aspects of life. So my focus regarding suffering is shifting. I wonder, is it possible to intentionally dwell with another in the face of the unknowable reality of life? To dwell within the reality, in silence. To not change what is. To not attempt to find meaning where there is no meaning. But to be at one with what is. And in this, experience healing. In practice, I have tried to incorporate rational discussion of meaning. But I have found that it often breaks down precisely at the juncture of crisis and death as well as when ministering to those with dementia or Alzheimer's disease. As a chaplain in long-term care, it is these areas that I am most involved with and therefore most attentive to. How does one accompany another at the edges of life, in the midst of crisis, in the process of dying, in the full-blown uncertainty of an emergency, or in the gentle slipping away of a memory sense of self. I have journeyed with over 500 people who have died. This is the gift I have received as a minister to our elderly community members. Maybe the gift from her own hero's journey, or maybe even better, the gift that she received from the hero's journey of those she was ministering to. I've listened to countless stories of people's lives, of how they have overcome difficult and challenging situations, of how they found hope in moments of crisis and uncertainty, of how they have woven together a lifetime of seemingly disparate experiences into a whole, of how they have faced into and lived with uncertainty or fought valiantly against it, of how they have laughed and loved and played and rejoiced in the midst of chaos, of how they have melded with the power of creation and created anew their daily lives. Listening has plunged me into a depth I cannot always fathom, but of which I am intensely made aware as I listen. Listening and being with has caused me to see beyond words and actions. There is, in truth, no separateness, for all is one deeply and profoundly one, interdependent and grounded in oneness. Now, of course, there still needs the presence of reason. We have to still reason together, right? We still need to express meaning in actual terms that we can use at times. But there needs to be a balance as well. Rational or expressed meaning works, quote-unquote, in our day-to-day lives. We know that. We practice that. 
but it breaks down at the times like she's talking about. It breaks down into silence when the trauma or the intensity of the moment is so great. We can't express it anymore. We can't define it anymore. It turns out, in my way of thinking now, that ultimate meaning, just as we've talked about God's will for so many years, is not a what, but a how. Right? It's not something that we can define, not a definable what, but a how, just a way of living, a way of relating, a way of being silenced in the face of things that we can't express. This how of connection, this how of presence is to experience connection, to experience presence, which is the expression of the meaning that we can't express. That inexpressible meaning at times like this is expressed in just the willingness to sit with it not to run away from it, not to try to define it in a way that it becomes comfortable again. Another lovely sermon, right? But something that still has the power to move us and shake us and bring us where we need to go. And there is no other way to the truth of the Father than this. This is what Jesus means when he says that. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, through this how of being, of connecting. And he expresses it in one more sentence at John 8.31, where he says, if you, should abide, if you should abide by my words, truly, my disciples you are. This is again from the uh, Aramaic Peshitta. And you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Four sections to that. If you should abide by my words, one, truly, my disciples you are kind of sounds like Yoda there, doesn't he? My disciples you are. And you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Abide by my words. Engross in, engage in my way of living, of loving, of seeing. Lose yourself in the process of the movement of spirit. Don't try to overthink it. Don't try to define it away. Lose yourself in that process. And then, second, you are truly my talmidim, my followers, a word for which we have no analog in English. But it means that you shift your identity from the separate self that you imagine yourself to be to the master. I and the Father are one. I and Jesus are one. Therefore, I and the Father are one. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? It's like that. That's what being a true disciple is all about. Lose yourself in the first step. Shift yourself over to the master. And then you will know the truth, the intimate experience of oneness of everything. The unity, that is love. And finally, to be set free by that. That in that truth, in that oneness, in that unity love that you are now experiencing, you realize there's nothing to fear. You are living in the freedom, the fearless vulnerability and dependence of the true anavim, the talmidim. One sentence, four parts. Turns out, Brother Lawrence is right. Of course, only because he's channeling Jesus, right? <laughs> Practicing presence is the spiritual life. 
It may look like many different things. Meaning, purpose, identity, love, freedom, healing, peace, obedience. But really, all it is is experiencing the unity of being present. That's it. If we do that one thing, if that's all we do, just that one thing, seek first the kingdom, practice presence, everything else is added. We get it all. That's what they're saying. If we just entered into every moment that we experience desiring, right in the frontal lobe of our brain, that we leave every person that we meet better than we found them, how would that change the experience of those moments? It would require our presence, our full presence, to really see the person, not focused on unrelated thoughts, but see the person where they are right now and what they actually need so that we can leave them better than we found them. But we need presence to do that. It requires losing ourselves, losing the boundaries between us and another person, getting less clear about where we end and they begin. In many ways, identify with the other, become the other. It requires practice that we keep returning to the present moment each time our emotions or our mind draws us away to come back. That one thing that we can do in our desire to be present, to leave people better than we found them. If you can't state your spirituality in one sentence, then you're not going to be able to practice it either. One sentence one primary thing that you actually do. Find that. Find your one sentence. Find your central principle that guides you and let it give you everything else that Jesus is talking about. But boil it down. What is the one thing to you? And then proceed from there. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. Let's pray. Father, this really is simple. But of course, it requires everything from us to get to that place of simplicity. So help us be willing to spend some time in the silence and solitude that will create in us the inner stillness that will allow us to see the simplicity that you're presenting to us. And when we resist it, as we will, when even we try to embrace it and then in the next step experience the fear again that causes us to run back. Have a connection with us strong enough that pulls us forward again and again and again as many times as we need to keep choosing to move in your direction, to keep choosing to move into the new world that you have for us, even though it first presents as so frightening. That's what we want. That's what we're saying that we want and pray for, even though our actions are all over the place. Help us, in spite of ourselves, to continue to work towards you, to accept the call to our hero's journey, perform the tasks that need to be performed, not because they have any value in themselves, but they will bring us back where we started and show us the place again for the first time. So, Father, we thank you for all of this. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Let's all stand.